Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you very much. You don't know what you're going to get, do you? <laughs> Rung in at the last minute. So wasn't our prayer series great? It just ended. <laughs> A sudden end, but still pretty good. All right. Uh, welcome to those of you online. Nice to have you join us. Today's sermon is titled, Everything Would Be Better If. There's a lot of irony in that title. And it's an unfinished statement. I preached this sermon first in Hong Kong, in the church that I served there for a number of years, as part of a series we called Rethink. And Rethink was a series that looked at some faulty or harmful core beliefs that we can hold, and we uh, discussed those and how to bring those to God and rethink, essentially, um, how we perceive ourselves, God, life, etc. There's real irony in this message, though, because everything would be better if Matthew Newton was not sick and was up here <laughs> preaching the message he was supposed to be preaching. <laughs> Poor man, he's very, very unwell. Actually, there's another irony, because when I first preached this, I, I was preparing it, as I do with lots of time, to do a proper job of it, and the senior pastor of the church in Hong Kong fell ill just before a Sunday, and I was due to preach this on the following Sunday, and I had to uh, rush to complete it and preach it, just as I am doing today. So an immense amount of irony, and there is no PowerPoint presentation, apologies, that's what you get for last minute. But a lot of this message is a story, so feel free to close your eyes when we hit the story and just listen to the story. So really, God's having a laugh um, with this whole message. This message is really about how we may want things in life to be different than they are, and by thinking that way, we can actually miss the presence of God in the actual events of life, hard as they may be at times. We can fail to see God's hand weaving good out of tragical, painful circumstances that we face. Now, don't hear me wrong. None of this is to say that we should fake our positivity in life and pretend that stuff, tough stuff isn't painful. Hardship hurts. Loss deprives us. Betrayal wounds us, and God knows that. But we have a God who meets us in hardship. We have a God who comforts those who mourn. We actually have a God who suffered betrayal and understands. So to believe that life would be better if our circumstances were different is to overlook God's presence with us and the fact that God is in the business of bringing beauty out of ashes, joy out of mourning, and the garment of praise from the spirit of heaviness, Isaiah 61. Now, in a moment, I said we're going to tell a story. We're going to have a look at a biblical figure who I think, perhaps more than any other, besides Job or Jesus, had the right to think everything would be better if. And yet this figure exemplifies an openness to God weaving something good from tragic circumstances in their life. And that figure is the Old Testament character Joseph. 
And Joseph's life story is one of the longest stories in Scripture. But before we get to Joseph, I want to ask us, I want to ask you, how do you end the statement, everything would be better if? Think about that for a moment. How do you end that statement, everything would be better if? There are many ways people end that statement. Maybe you think to yourself, everything would be better if I had a different job. I might have thought that this week, actually. Um, <laughs> or everything would be better if I didn't have a mortgage. Or I owned a house and did have a mortgage. Or everything would be, would be better if I was married. Or maybe if I wasn't married. Everything would be better if my spouse listened to me. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> way, way too quick, love. Way too quick. God. <laughs> my children listen to me. Anybody listen to me? <laughs> Thanks, hon. Um, everything would be better if I heard from God more clearly. Or if I was free from that physical or emotional illness that I struggle with. Or if I had more friends. The list goes on. There's many ways we can think. Everything would be better if. For me, I end that statement in various ways. One of the ways I think I regularly end it is this. Everything would be better if I could get all my work done in life. Well, the fact is, fact is I'm in pastoral ministry in various forms of leadership and teaching, which means constant nebulous challenges with no end in sight. So no chance of that. I think beneath that desire to have everything completed, controlled, ordered, is a faulty core belief that if I can order, complete, and control everything in life, um, then life is safe. Does anybody else feel that way? That's, that's my inner struggle. I wonder what's yours. Imagine what happened to me earlier this year when our newly renovated and nicely ordered house flooded. Shifting internal core beliefs isn't easy, but with the help of God, it can be done. Though it does involve recognizing the subtle lie that underpins a faulty belief. And I think the subtle lie under that general belief that everything would be better if my life was different is something saying, my life isn't good. My life isn't worth giving thanks for. My life isn't blessed. And I want to suggest that that itself is actually a subtle denial of the goodness of God, of God's presence in life, even in the tough stuff of life. And so it interferes with our relationship with God and I think it's particularly damaging because there are just quite simply many circumstances in life beyond our control. Not all of them easy. Life throws curveballs at us. Tragedy does come sometimes out of nowhere. And not all the hopes we have in life are realized. And so true life in God, life in all its fullness, can only actually, actually be lived in the real life that we have with good times and tough times with joy and sorrow, because it's as God meets us in those circumstances that we know 
the blessed life of faith in God through Jesus Christ. And so the flourishing Christian life cannot actually be lived in a fantasy that longs to rewrite the script of life. It has to be lived in the life we actually have. But hey, we're in good company, good biblical company even, if we would like our life to be different. The righteous man, Job, found himself in such a miserable place that he felt everything would be better if he hadn't even been born. He complained, saying, Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Job's case may be extreme, but he wasn't the first and he won't be the last person to wish that things were different. Even Jesus, believe it or not, wished for things to be different and had a moment where he thought everything would be better if. Can you, can you think when? On his knees, in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying what? Father, if this cup of suffering, if you're willing, let this cup of suffering pass from me. For Jesus, in that moment, he genuinely felt everything would be better if I didn't have to go to the cross. And yet, there, is his, his, there are his next words. Not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus moved from the natural desire for things to be different to a place of profound acceptance and trust in God, even in the face of death. And that is our example. But let's get to Joseph. Here's the story. Joseph's story is one of shocking mistreatment and repeated trauma. The story does end well, but only after Joseph loses everything and endures, endures great misery. And so if anybody had a reason to think everything would be better if things were different, it was actually the biblical figure, Joseph. He was his father's favorite son, but that is where his troubles began. And so we read in Genesis 37, now Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his children. We also read, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. A warning to parents, don't play favorites with your children. Now, no doubt each of Jacob's, uh, Joseph's brothers thought everything would be better if dad loved me as much as they loved that spoiled brat of a brother. Joseph did actually behave a bit like a spoiled brat. He told tales on his brothers. He also told his brothers rather unwisely that he had dreamt that one day they would bow down to him. Imagine, imagine how that went down. <laughs> he, they did bow down to him, but he didn't need to tell them that in advance. So having had enough of their younger brother, they conspired to kill him. Only the intervention of his brother Reuben saved Joseph from murder. Instead, he was beaten up and he was sold to passing traders who on-sold him in Egypt. And then his brothers broke their father's heart by telling him that his favorite son had been killed by a wild beast. And so at 17 years of age, Joseph found himself enslaved in a foreign country. I think what's remarkable is that he didn't languish 
in self-pity. Rather, at this point, we begin to see his true character and calling. His master, Potiphar, was the captain of Pharaoh's guard, essentially the head of Pharaoh's personal security detail. Potiphar was a busy man. Joseph proved himself so reliable and capable that Potiphar entrusted him with every detail of his property and personal affairs. Joseph essentially managed Potiphar's estate. With every reason to feel angry and reluctant to work, Joseph instead diligently served the man who owned him as a slave. How did he do that? How did he apparently seem to avoid developing a deep core belief that everything would be better if? I think we have a clue in the midst of the story. Genesis 39 verses 2 to 3 tells us the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. The man for whom everything obviously could have been much better chose to walk with God. The words, the Lord was with Joseph, also imply the inverse. Joseph was with God. Somehow in his loss of freedom, he didn't turn around and say, God has abandoned me. Remarkable, don't you think? Joseph made a choice to keep company with God, even as a slave in a foreign land. And yet I wonder, how often do we blame God for disappointing and traumatic events in life and retreat from God, rather than look for the presence of God in the midst of the trial? God ensured that Joseph found favor with his master. Joseph flourished for a season, but his success was short-lived because managing Potiphar's personal affairs included dealing with Potiphar's bored wife who didn't fail to notice that Joseph was young and attractive. And she had no qualms about asking Joseph to sleep with her. Joseph honoured God and Pharaoh, for the, uh, sorry, Potiphar for that matter, by refusing her repeatedly. I imagine Potiphar's wife was used to getting her way with the slaves, so she spitefully framed Joseph with a false accusation of sexual harassment, which her husband believed. Joseph was thrown in prison. To be a foreign slave betrayed by his brothers was bad enough. To be a wrongfully accused, imprisoned foreign slave was a lot worse. Did Joseph wonder, where are you, God? Are you not a God of justice? It's interesting because the text of Scripture is often silent on a person's inner world. We don't know if Joseph had a faith struggle. doesn't mean he didn't have one. But what we do know from the text is that in prison, Joseph did again what he did when he first entered Potiphar's house. He conducted himself faithfully, diligently, with integrity. 
And he won the trust of those who were watching him. We read, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Just strikes me now that the chief jailer probably went off and took a holiday. Joseph became a prison administrator and a prison chaplain. Think about it. It's quite remarkable. And he set about making the prison a better place for those around him. He could have sat in the corner disgruntled. I really think we should allow the story of Joseph to challenge us if we have any tendency to point to our misfortune in life as an excuse for a failure to love others or to faithfully honour God wherever we find ourselves in life. Even in the confines of prison, Joseph found a way to honour God and bless others. And there, he rapidly rose again in responsibility. Now, in prison with Joseph were the king's cupbearer and the king's Baker, let's assume Pharaoh had a bad lunch. Both men had dreams which Joseph Joseph interpreted. As Joseph predicted, the cupbearer was restored to his post while the baker was hanged. I remember the story as a child being really deeply concerned at the arbitrary difference. (laughs) One got his job back, the other was hanged. I thought, ooh, how do you know, you know, which one you're going to be? Um, and maybe, and I thought about it just yesterday, maybe the story is there to show the godlike nature of Pharaoh. He has the power of life and death. He really is like a god, but he's not God, as we learn from the story. Those of us who serve communion, which we don't have today, just might want to um, handle the cup and not the tray of wafers. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Now, Joseph's parting words to the cupbearer as he was released from prison back into the royal court and into the service of Pharaoh were these. He said, remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to, mention, to make mention of me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this place. Very sensible thing to say when you're languishing in prison. And yet a little later we read, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Poor old Joseph, he can't win. He does the right thing again and again. He serves faithfully. He resists the advances of married women. He looks after his fellow prisoners. He even interprets their dreams. Not that the baker would have thanked him. What does he get for his faithfulness? He gets forgotten. So another word to us at this point. People fail us, don't they? Of course, we fail others also, but we tend to forget that, don't we? Just as quickly as the cupbearer forgot Joseph. What we don't tend to forget is when people fail us. Those times lodge in the mind. They take root. And then that thought begins to grow. Everything would be better if... 
And so for some of us, the inner narrative that begins with the statement, everything would be better if, is followed by the memory of human betrayal. Everything would be better if my parents had not divorced. Everything would be better if my boss did not overlook my contribution to the company. Everything would be better if my friend had not shared that thing I shared with them in confidence to others. In a sinful, fallen world, people fail each other. They let each other down regularly. Even Jesus, who wronged no one, found himself alone on the night of his arrest, betrayed by one of his disciples and disowned by one of his closest friends. And yet I want to say this. The failure of others to treat us fairly and love us well does not have the last word. God has the last word, and God is faithful. In a beautifully succinct verse in Psalm 27, the writer declares, If my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. That, those words would be meaningful for Joseph, though they were written after him. Where people fail us, God steps in. Where we are fickle as human beings, God is not. Jesus' own betrayal, his wrongful arrest, his corrupt trial, his cruel execution did not have the last word. God had the last word in the resurrection. Imagine if Joseph had looked no further than how others had treated him. He may have completely despised his life. By all accounts, Joseph should have been a bitter individual with major trust issues. And again, the text is silent. Maybe Joseph did battle feelings of rejection and depression. Be surprising if he did not. Scripture is too brief at times to paint a full picture. Joseph was human. No doubt it wasn't easy. But whatever inner battles Joseph may have fought, Scripture tests to his unshakable faith in God, his astonishing openness to others, and that's what struck me, looking again at that story, and his faithfulness in serving God and others, even after multiple betrayals. When the royal cupbearer's memory is finally jogged by the fact that Pharaoh has two dreams which no one can interpret, Joseph is dragged out of prison, scrubbed up, and presented to Pharaoh, who says to him, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. <laughs> no, no pressure, Joseph. What's interesting is the Joseph we meet at this moment doesn't dwell on the great injustice he has suffered. Just think how he could have used that royal audience he might have said to Pharaoh, I'll interpret your dream. Just one small favor, though. You know that head of your security, Potiphar? His seductive, deceitful wife told fibs about me. Would you mind giving her a spell in prison? Joseph doesn't think of himself. He doesn't seem to be planning to get even. He seems to know who rules the universe, who vindicates the righteous, who interprets 
the dreams of kings. And so in response to Pharaoh, he says, it's not I, so I'm not, I'm not the one that interprets. It's not I. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. Amazing. Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, enslaved, wrongly accused, thrown in prison, forgotten by one of his former prison inmates. He affirms the goodness of God, the power of God, the providence of God. Pharaoh was so impressed with Joseph's wisdom and dream interpretation skills that he promptly made him governor of Egypt, second only in authority to Pharaoh himself. And then, with the same diligence that he brought to Potiphar's house and to reforming a prison, Joseph oversaw, oversaw seven years of systematic taxation in Egypt in order to store sufficient grain to mitigate seven subsequent years of famine, which is what Pharaoh's dreams had foretold. The surrounding nations poured into Egypt to purchase grain, while Joseph essentially administered a world food program at a profit, of course, for Pharaoh. Ten of Joseph's brothers travelled to Egypt to secure food for a starving family. Joseph recognised them immediately, but they failed to recognise him in his fine clothes and political position. Through some very clever coercion, Joseph forced them to return to Canaan and bring back their 11th brother, Benjamin. And when he had all 11 brothers standing in front of them, he revealed who he was to their amazement and their terror. Joseph's brothers did what? Bowed before him, as God had foretold. With one word, Joseph could have had them all killed. Instead, he chose to forgive them. He summed up his harrowing life and God's hand on it by saying this to his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? There's an irony in that because he's the governor of Egypt. He's next to the God of Egypt. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. It's like Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Joseph extends grace to his guilty brothers. In his maturity, Joseph understood that God weaves his redemptive purposes through our painful human trials. God takes something intended to harm us and he uses it for good. He brings life out of death. He brings joy out of sorrow. He brings beauty out of ashes. He reconciles 12 brothers. Joseph, the betrayed brother, became the salvation of his family and of the future nation Israel and of many other lives at a time of famine. Can I have the band just come up now? Thanks. You don't necessarily know how God will use 
the difficult thing that tempts you to think everything will be better, would be better if. You don't yet see or may not see what beautiful and redemptive purpose God can weave from the painful or shameful burden that you carry. What someone else intended for harm, God can use for good in your life. What you wish had never happened to you, God can transform and use for the healing of others. Where you feel an absence or sense of deprivation, God wants to meet you and sustain you with his presence. Though you suffer adversity, God can forge Christ-like character in you through it so that you bear witness to him just as Joseph did. And so rather than think everything would be better if, God can teach us to say everything will be good because. Everything will be good because God sees the end from the beginning, even though I don't. Everything will be good because though people may fail me, God will not. Everything will be good because, though I feel powerless in my present circumstances, there are gifts that God has given me, like the gifts that Joseph had. And his gifts were not just dream interpretation. He was an administrator. He was diligent. He was compassionate. He was a reformer of institutions. What gifts has God given you that you can use for his glory, despite the trials you've faced in life. Everything will be good because God will redeem and renew all things. Will you join me today in renouncing the lie that everything would be better if? And will you join me in placing your trust in a God who brings good out of every evil and who can teach us to walk faithfully with him, the one who raised Christ from the dead? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, when we consider again the life of Joseph, it's an amazing life. And it's one in which we actually see genuine character development and maturity. And we want to mature, Lord. We want to grow in Christ-like character. And we marvel that Joseph did so under such harrowing circumstances, Lord. And we have faced um, all different manner and measures of pain and suffering in this room, Lord. Some of us have suffered more greatly than others, but all of us have known times, Lord, of deprivation, of loss, of tragedy, of human betrayal. We ask you, Lord, that you would teach us to walk with you as Joseph walked with you. May you be present with us through your Holy Spirit as you were present with Joseph in his trial. And Lord, may we see you not only deliver us, but turn all that was intended for evil to good, Lord, so that we can be your agents of renewal and redemption, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Amen.